Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture, with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm one of your hosts this season, Erin Phillips, and today we're not just going on a journey, we're going on a pilgrimage. In fact, we're going on three pilgrimages around the world. When you think of a pilgrim, you probably think of a sort of religious tourist, someone headed to a destination with special meaning, like a historical holy site or a grave. Pilgrimages, however, especially the Jewish ones we'll explore today, are about so much more than the destination. While there's no one universal pilgrimage at the center of Judaism, Jews have been venturing out on spiritual journeys for as long as Judaism has been around. In fact, Back in the time of the First and Second Temple, from about 970 BCE up until 70 CE, three major Jewish holidays were observed through pilgrimages. Every year on Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, Jews would journey to the Temple in Israel to worship and make sacrifices to God. While the destruction of the Second Temple ended the religious requirement to offer up sacrifices, Many Jews today venture to the Western Wall or other holy sites in Israel as modern-day pilgrims. And what's more, Jewish diaspora communities around the world observe distinct pilgrimage festivals and rituals both inside and outside of Israel to this day. From the Armon Hanatziv Promenade in Jerusalem to the formerly thriving Jewish community of Tlemcen, Algeria, to the war-torn streets of Uman, Ukraine, Jewish pilgrims find religious meaning and social connection by journeying together to holy places, breaking bread, praying, singing, and yes, even schmoozing. Today, we'll walk with three groups of Jewish pilgrims from around the world, learn the social and spiritual functions their journeys serve, and discover the common elements that tie them together. Our first pilgrimage journey has many stops along the way. Mount Sinai, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the East Talpiot settlement in Israel. But it begins on a mountaintop in Ethiopia. So the Sigd is a special holiday that's part of the calendar of holidays that Ethiopian Jews were celebrating. And it takes place 50 days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is Dr. Adane Zaudu Gebyanesh, a cultural sociologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Polonsky Academy of the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. He studies the Ethiopian Jewish community, including their unique pilgrimage holiday known as Sigd. It was a moment in which people from different settlements and, and villages and areas would come and gather together. And usually, each area had its own location. And that location was specifically chosen to facilitate a certain kind of aspect of the holiday. It was a Mount Sinai-like landscape, it was supposed to be. It was kind of meant to serve kind of a renewal of the covenant with God, a reminder of that transformative moment in Mount Sinai in which all these people became kind of the people of Israel and received the laws and the book. Sigd literally means prostration in the Ethiopian Semitic language of Guz. The holiday represents a moment from the book of Deuteronomy when, after the Israelites have been punished for creating the golden calf and straying from God, 
Moses returns to Mount Sinai and brings down the second set of tablets to renew the covenant the people made in Exodus. Ethiopian communities would select a nearby mountaintop to represent Mount Sinai and would climb the mountain. At the top, they would fast and pray for many hours. Then they would break the fast with a communal meal and festivities meant to remind them of their oneness as a nation. While Sigd was considered a pilgrimage, the destination was metaphorical, a representation of Mount Sinai. The actual physical sites people visited were only holy because religious leaders and communities chose them. And they didn't just choose one. The exact number is kind of hard to say because the people who are in remote areas had their own particular location that would serve their, the people who live um, in that area. So you can think of even dozens. Because of the many different observances of SIGD, it's hard to say when and why it began. Historians believe it had something to do with social pressures on the Ethiopian Jewish community and a need to reaffirm group identity. There's also like different historians who speak of the holiday somehow coming out of like a, a historical moment of pressure, of external pressure, and somehow the need to bring holidays and rituals that will help to sustain what is being understood as, a, as an attack, as a, as a weakening of kind of a group identity, religious identity. Some people take it to uh, the 15th century, and some others locate that moment in, in, kind of a, in different times. It makes more sense to think of it as a, as a process in which kind of the holidays kind of slowly, slowly consolidate and crystallize into the form that we, are, that we know today. Because SIGD is all about community and identity, pilgrims each year would first need to choose where they would observe the holiday. The actual site, unlike with many pilgrimages, was less important. All of them represented Mount Sinai in the same way. More important were factors like distance, social and family ties, and the languages fellow participants spoke. Once a pilgrim selected their destination, they would have to prepare well in advance for the journey. And again, the distances in Ethiopia, it depends on which location you were, and like, people were in different proximity to the sites of the Sigd holiday. So people had to make sure that they can make it, but because it was an event that kind of uh, involved a lot of people and it was, a mo it was also an opportunity for people to meet their relatives from like other areas, and so people might also like make it even earlier into a relative that is um, more nearby to the site, making sure that they can make it as early as they can. Once pilgrims arrived near the site of the festivities though, their journey had just begun. The day of Sigd started at dawn. Pilgrims would trek up to the chosen mountaintop, carrying a rock on their back to begin hours of fasting and prayer. There's a lot of like practices and rituals within the holidays, such as when people climb to the top of the mountain, people in certain areas and in certain times used to have rocks uh, on their back to symbolize um, their relationship to that kind of a moment. and and God and the rock supposed to somehow communicate like a humble, bodily disposition. And during the fasting, there was also praying taking place and reading from the Torah of, or from the Mitzahaf Kudus, which is like the Holy Script, as it's being said in, uh, in the Ethiopian languages. Uh, Mitzahaf Kudus is in Giz, 
which is kind of a, it's been in English is called classic Ethiopic, um, which is kind of a, the language in which the religious rituals are being um, conducted. So while the people, kind of ordinary people, uh, were fasting, uh, they were also listening to the to the priest or to the to the kesoch, reading from the Torah, and the particular chapters and parts of the of the Torah that they were reading were those who either spoke about kind of the Mount Sinai m- moment of ancient Israelites or other chapters that are associated with that particular event. Following the prayers and fasting, community members would prepare food to begin the second half of the holiday, a ritual feast and celebratory social gathering that began with the literal breaking of bread. The kind of other distinction between the, the first half and the second half was being enacted was through the bread, the special bread that was being baked specifically for that. That bread was being kind of ritually cut by the religious figures, and that symbolized that everyone can start eating. The second half is one in which like, the soundscape of the site is changing and people start to kind of uh, uh, socialize with others. And socialize with others might be um, a very dramatic event. People might meet their relatives that they didn't meet for a long period of time. It might be also a moment in which people can share all different news, exchange information, information from people who are about to get married, or babies who were born recently, any kind of like information that's relevant to kind of sustain this communal and familial ties. But as the Sigt holiday allowed the Ethiopian Jewish community to reconnect and celebrate, it also carried a deeper, more melancholy significance. One of the main symbols that were part of that day was the longing for Jerusalem. And that's something that was kind of, a, it's almost, I mean, it does, I mean, the longing for Jerusalem is in many Jewish communities, and in particular in the context of Ethiopia, was something that was part of many of uh, the religious holidays. But for the Sigd holiday, it was even more central. By the 1970s and 1980s, that longing for Jerusalem would take on a new meaning among the Ethiopian Jewish community, as political conditions forced many to immigrate to Israel. And from the moment in which uh, people started to kind of migrate in small numbers, it also affected the holiday. It meant that familial structures, extended families, were being weakened in which certain members were migrating to Israel. It meant that some of the people who facilitate certain roles in their area for the holidays might not have been available. Meanwhile, in Israel, new immigrants used SIGD as an opportunity to gather with the community, with less emphasis on the symbolic pilgrimage aspects and more emphasis on reformulating necessary social networks. If you think of those early years, it also meant that those who came to Israel didn't necessarily knew the state or didn't necessarily knew as much those who were in Israel, kind of Ethiopian Jews, and the event became also a place and a time to gather and to meet um, and communicate and exchange information of relatives uh, for those who came recently and had much more information than those who came much earlier. SIGD celebrations remained much smaller over the ensuing decades, even as most of the remaining Ethiopian Jewish community immigrated to Israel. In 1983 and 1984, 
as the situation in Ethiopia and neighboring Sudan deteriorated, activists used SIGD as a political organizing tool to demand Israeli government assistance. But this revival was short-lived. Finally, in the 1990s, a group of Israeli non-governmental organizations set out to shine a spotlight on SIGD. And then we see somehow a revival of the holiday in which like different Ethiopian NGOs in the, in the 90s starts to organize in this like demand to recognize the holiday as an official holiday in the national Israeli calendar. And they succeed. And in 2008, the Israeli Association for Ethiopian Jews uh, managed to lobby in the Israeli parliament and to get the holiday recognized uh, as an official one. The official designation of SIGD as a state holiday had many impacts on its practice. While it reinvigorated attendance numbers, it also made the ceremonies and proceedings much more secular affairs. With time, though, the community has managed to preserve many of the pilgrimage elements, selecting new central gathering sites in Israel for the festivities. In the early years, you see people moving between different locations. Um, there's documentations of trying to find a place in, uh, in the north of Israel, Haifa, for example. So we see all these like, different changes until Jerusalem, Armona Natsiv, is starting to acquire this kind of fixed place for the Sikh holiday. For some community members, especially for those who came from a region, um, Amharic-speaking Ethiopian Jews. But uh, the second location in which the Sikh holiday is also being celebrated is the Akotel Amarvi. Uh, the Wailing Wall, and that's the place in which people who speak Tigrinya, who, who come from Tigray in Ethiopia, tend to go there, and they do that since kind of the early 80s. Today, SIGD is celebrated by various groups of Ethiopian Jews at Armon Hanatziv, at the Western Wall, and in cities and towns throughout Israel. And while many feel the holiday has lost some of its original religious meaning, the journey for SIGD pilgrims has always been more important than the physical destination. However short or long, easy or difficult, the pilgrimage of SIGD, the act of traveling to a shared space and making it holy through imagination and ritual, is the part of the holiday that has always brought the community together. And we, I think we're living in a time in which like, the conversation about the importance of community is being talked about throughout the world. So I think that we should somehow appreciate those like holidays and practices that somehow foster our sense of kind of a, of membership, of belonging and social ties and celebrate it. The next stop on our pilgrimage tour is Algeria. Tlemcen was one of, one of the places in North Africa that was known as a little Jerusalem. So in this case, it was known as the, the Jerusalem of the West. This is Dr. Chris Silver, the Seagal Family Assistant Professor of Jewish History and Culture at McGill University. He studied Jewish pilgrimages from across North Africa and the Middle East, including a popular one to the Algerian city of Tlemcen. It was to the tomb of a figure that became known as the Rab, or uh, Master, uh, the Rabbi Ephraim Ankawa, who uh, was a Toledo-born rabbi, born in 1359, and who would eventually flee Spanish persecution there. And let's say, long story short, he becomes responsible for sort of re 
hyphen forming, <laughs> reestablishing the um, uh, the Jewish presence uh, in this important uh, Algerian city known as Tlemcen. And he's associated with a number of sort of miraculous uh, happenings. So he's sort of in some ways, he's typical of uh, the figure of the tzaddik, uh, the sainted person in uh, the North African context, in that he's a figure of erudition. So he's known for his erudition, and he's also known for his miracle-making. Stories of Rabbi Ephraim and Kalwa taming and riding tigers or healing the sultan's daughter drew many followers and supporters to him. After his death, Jews across North Africa came to his gravesite in hopes of attaining good luck, healing, and wisdom. Annually, uh, from centuries earlier, well through the, the 20th century, including after Algerian independence in 1962, in which uh, the Jewish community disappears, people uh, annually or, or biannually would make the pilgrimage. The visiting of, of saints' tombs is... Um, it's a break from the mundane in every way. So, you know, it's a break from just sort of uh, regular practice. And it's also at the same time, you know, the, the tombs of these sainted figures become um, sites not just of sort of breaking the mon- mundane, but when sort of the not mundane happens to someone, then they, they seek out sort of answers or help in such uh, sites. And so, the the other piece of this is that people would would um, seek out the blessing of these uh, tzaddikim uh, in times of distress as well. So sort of going back to this idea of sort of breaking free of of the mundane. And this was often if a woman wanted to uh, bear children but couldn't, they would seek out the blessing or the power of uh, the tzaddikim. And uh, also just if someone was ill and needed, uh, and needed treatment. Jews would typically travel to the tomb of the Rab during Lagba Omer, a popular time to make pilgrimage throughout much of the Jewish world. Unlike with Sigd, however, pilgrimages to Tlemcen and many of the North African pilgrimages in honor of sages were not limited to just one day. People would decamp for um, this site for a number of days, sometimes up until uh, a week's uh, time. And this was a pilgrimage, like others, that was full of food, drink, and music and music making as well. For early pilgrims traveling by foot, many of these communal activities began on the road. Like the Sigd pilgrimage, the experience was often just as much about the journey as it was about reaching the actual site. Many of these sites in North Africa until sort of the, I would say really the 40s, were quite difficult to get to. And so that heightened uh, sort of religious experience is is imbued in it from the get-go. Like, how are you going to arrive there? It requires a considerable amount of, of, of planning. And there's even a little bit of a question mark, like, will you arrive there safely? You almost need um, the protection of the saint along the path in order to, to reach your destination safely. Difficult as these pilgrimage journeys were, Jews were not alone on their path. They were often joined by Muslim counterparts, hoping to do business and sometimes even join them on the pilgrimage. In the North African context, 
the entanglement of the Jewish-Muslim relationship really sort of comes uh, to the fore through either sites of pilgrimage, Hilula, Ziyara, uh, where tzaddikim are buried that Muslims would visit as well, or the fact that in some cases, Muslims sort of outfitted these pilgrimages. So um, food, water, the provisions necessary to do sort of the social that we spoke about uh, earlier fell to sort of the the domain and realm of uh, the Muslim community uh, in the area. The resources the Muslim community offered became even more important in the 20th century. As technology advanced, pilgrims began taking on longer and more arduous journeys to reach sites they previously thought were inaccessible. But while pilgrims often bravely took on the dangers of the road to reach Sadiqim, over time, the dangers at home would permanently alter the landscape of North African Jewish life, driving many out of their homelands. And yet, pilgrimages persisted. You know, there's the reality that exile migration is, is part of uh, the, the story of North African Jews in, in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, in some places, that, that pace of departure is quickened, is hastened. So Algeria is, of course, a, a really important uh, case in point where at the moment of uh, Algerian independence in 1962, you know, the vast majority of the community will depart for France uh, at that time. Uh, the uh, Algerian Jews, because of a number of, of complicated historical processes, had been, for the most part, uh, French citizens uh, since the end of the 19th century. So legally speaking, they were uh, repatriated uh, in 1962. But of course, it's much more complicated than that, repatriated to a place that, that many had, had never, in fact, been to, metropolitan France. All of that being said, for some decades, after, uh, you know, as the majority of the population departs and settles anew in metropolitan France, there were quite a few who continued to return to Algeria in order to make those pilgrimages, uh, including to Tlemcen, to the, to the tomb of the Rab. And so, you know, what you get a sense of is sort of the lengths that people are willing to take in order to visit these sites and the risks uh, as well. It's easy to see how important sites like Tlemcen throughout North Africa continue to be to this day, especially as governments, Jewish diaspora communities, and Muslim locals work together to restore pilgrimage sites. The Moroccan government in particular has been quite good, especially of recent, of um, working to sort of um, rehabilitate some of these pilgrimage sites and, and the cemeteries which uh, surround them. And so, you know, you, you get to the, this, this fascinating phenomenon of sort of Jewish sites of which, you know, there are no longer Jewish communities there, except for, you know, for a week, a year, uh, when many sort of former residents or descendants of those who once lived there return uh, to these places, again, that are, are very much sort of off the beaten path. Uh, and as well, uh, uh, North African Jews who, who often finance uh, the preservation and the upkeeping of these uh, sites. Though political tensions have driven much of the Jewish population out of Algeria, Morocco, and other North African countries, centuries of Jewish pilgrimage traditions have left their mark on the region. Just as Ethiopian Jews continue to connect through pilgrimage rituals after their immigration to Israel, 
North African Jews continued to connect through pilgrimage with each other and their Muslim counterparts, even in exile. It's sort of a reminder of just how entangled, of course, Jewish history was with its um, uh, environment. Uh, and in this case, you know, how embedded uh, the Jewish community was in, in a majority Muslim uh, milieu. And so, you know, we can we can see that sort of through sort of thinking of uh, shared sites of pilgrimage in which not just that sort of, you know, Jews and, and Muslims coalesced around, around the same sites, but that Muslims in North Africa understood uh, tzaddikim as possessing certain curative or spiritual powers. North Africa is far from the only place, however, where pilgrimage journeys have been reshaped by war. In order like, to understand what is a woman for the Braslov Hasidim, we can see how during the COVID or during the war, a lot of them tried to come there despite uh, the physical uh, risk. This is Alexandra Mandelbaum, a Maskilot Fellow at the David Hartman Center for Intellectual Leadership and a doctoral candidate in the Department of Jewish Thought at Ben-Gurion University. She studies Breslov Hasidism, a movement of Orthodox Judaism deeply committed to the spiritual and mystical ideas of the Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Each year, thousands of Breslov Hasids attempt to make a pilgrimage to Rabbi Nachman's grave in Uman, Ukraine. Basically, Hasidim of Breslov try to follow Rabbi Nachman's saying that each person that will come to his grave after he will pass away will get a redemption, will get his soul clean, will get a connection, renewed connection to God. So they want to follow it and they come on Rosh Hashanah. Uman has long held spiritual significance to the Breslov Hasidic community, even during Rabbi Nachman's life in the early 19th century. When Rabbi Nachman first traveled to Uman, he decided that the place was holy and that he would be buried there. He got to Uman in a certain stage of his life. And when he got to Uman, he remembered. And he remembered a pogrom that actually happened 40 years before Rabbi Nachman was born. The pogrom that called Pogrom Gunte happened in 1768. And we don't know the exact amount of people that were killed during the pogrom, but it was a big amount. The number is talking about 30,000 people. So that's a lot of people getting killed. And they were buried there. And Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, when he came to Uman, he said that he feels that this place is sacred because of those people who died because they were Jewish. So Rabbi Nachman felt that this place have a certain holiness, and he says the phrase, the, the, I, I kind of like this phrase, he says, it's good to lie down between them. He, he kind of had this sense of the, or the feeling that he's going to be buried there, and this is, this is a good thing. Shortly after his death in 1811, Rabbi Nachman's student, known as Rabbi Natan, and sometimes called Rabbi Nosan in Yiddish, established the pilgrimage to Nachman's gravesite. Nosan chose to time the pilgrimage around Rosh Hashanah, based on the teachings of Rabbi Nachman during his life. Another saying that Rabbi Nachman said is that it's good, it's a good uh, thing to come to Tzadikim, to their graves, before Rosh Hashanah, before New Year. 
So Rabbi Nassan, when Rabbi Nachman passed away, he kind of collected all those sayings together. Yeah, the idea of Rosh Hashanah, the idea of coming to Tzedekim, and the fact that Rabbi Nachman promised that he will help his Hasidim after his death. Like the Jews of North Africa, Hasidic Jews used the Hebrew word tzaddik, or tzaddikim, to refer to sages. And both groups visit the grave sites of tzaddikim on holy pilgrimages. And like in Algeria, the pilgrimage to Uman comes with challenges that heighten the deep spiritual nature of the journey. In Breslov in general, you have this idea that Rabbi Nachman left of meniot. Meniot meaning maybe obstacles. And it could be like spiritual obstacles, physical obstacles, things that prevent you from developing in your spiritual path. And one of the things that Rabbi Nachman was talking about is those meniot as those obstacles in a way, imaginary obstacles that try to test your inner will. Beginning in the early 20th century, these meniot, these obstacles, became a lot more serious. But nothing could stop the most dedicated Breslov Hasids from reaching Rabbi Nachman's grave. Not even the rise of the Soviet Union. We have to remember that it wasn't always easy. After the Soviet uh, regime started, Uman was closed, so a lot of people in Poland, for example, couldn't arrive to Uman. We have a story about uh, a Polish Hasid that got married, and two or three days after his marriage, he went there, and then he was stuck there for a few years. And it's a very tragical story in which his, his wife was obviously left alone in this uh, situation, and it was a kind of a radical idea of, of connecting to the tzaddik in any price. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the journey got much easier for Breslov Hasids. But despite the wide availability of commercial airline flights and the relative political stability of the region, there were still many out in the way for some. I was talking a few years ago with the woman that worked in um, the airport in Tel Aviv, in Atbag, and in Israel, and she said that there's a lot of mess during those days because a lot of people actually come to the airport without a ticket and maybe without a passport, and they come and they say, I know that Rabbi Nachman wants me there. He called me. I know it. I feel it and everything will be fine. And actually, in a very interesting way, a lot of people help each other arriving to Uman, so they kind of buy the last-minute tickets, people uh, donate money for each other in order they will be able to come to Uman. Also, we have a question, what do we do when Hasidim look at the resistance of their family to go to Uman as a spiritual obstacle? So we might go get also people who go despite of their family or they look at it as just many ought. Mandelbaum notes it's worth mentioning that this pilgrimage is taken by men only. While women's groups make the journey other times of year, the Rosh Hashanah festivities are a boys' club, which is why some may encounter resistance from their families. For those who can complete the journey, however, and arrive in Uman, the rewards are great, and the atmosphere is electric. 
The atmosphere is very like uh, uh, I won't say Woodstock, but it has a sense of uh, a festival and gathering together. So what you have is a lot of tents or a lot of halls in which uh, just you have the regular um, uh, prey of New Year's Eve of Rosh Hashanah. So that's a very long prayer. So so majority of time people pray this kind of prayer. But of course, because we have the Hasidic tradition of praying with Kavanah, Kavanah meaning intention, so the Hasidic prayer is different because they do use a lot of songs, a lot of uh, connections, between people connect to each other, hold hands, a lot of jumping, and also screaming, not bad screams, but, but just screams of, you know, Gewalt. And also you have a beautiful minhag of Tashlich, Tashlich meaning when people come to the lake and do some kind of ceremony with their pockets and kind of spiritually throw their sins into the water and purify them. While many men arrive each year to pray, dance, shout, and cast off their sins, few get to do so at the actual gravesite of Rabbi Nachman. The amount of people is so big, a majority of people can't access the actual grave. Of course, the grave is, is changed throughout the years and it was just a, a one small stone behind the building and then a whole complex was built upon it and you can't actually access the actual grave. Nevertheless, the site carries such spiritual power that even being near it is a holy experience. And not just for Breslov Hasids either. When I visited in Uman, I noticed something beautiful that the tzaddiks uh, and the sages' grave there is is very important to the local community of non-Jewish people in Ukraine. They look upon it in a few ways. From one perspective, it's a financial perspective. It gives them wealth and growth and tourism once a year. This is very, very important to them. They appreciate it. But they also appreciate it in a spiritual way. Some of them actually say that Sadik, the sage, is also our sage. He's a local sage, Ukrainian sage, and he helped us. And this is very interesting and beautiful from uh, my point of view. Like each of the pilgrimages we've explored, the Hasidic journey to Uman has also shaped the non-Jewish community there. And Mandelbaum notes that connection was highlighted by last year's Russian invasion of Ukraine, and more recently, a direct attack on Uman. There were actually missiles uh, coming um, uh, to Uman, and also I think 23 people got killed. And it was the first time during this war that uh, they attacked Uman, because it's it's uh, quite rare because... It's in a, more inside the country. It's not in the areas that we saw before. And one of the things that happened after there was a kind of a, also a, um, attack on the Russian side. And somebody in Ukraine mentioned that the attack happened because of kind of spiritual uh, reasons that connected to the fact that they messed, uh, the Russian messed with Uman. So I think that the theology, it's not only the Jewish theology of this place is sacred, but also something that is now, right now, common to both Ukraine and the Jewish people living in Uman. 
Something else Mandelbaum believes pilgrims have in common, within and beyond the boundaries of Jewish identity, is a desire to connect to something in between God and their everyday life. Holy people, places, and experiences. I think that actually this pilgrimage shows us the, the drive, the, the inner will of people, their subconscious wish to have a kind of a certain figure that they can connect to, which is not only God. I think that God in monotheism is such an important, not such, is the one. What can you say about him, right? After uh, Rambam, um, one of the Jewish uh, philosophers and big rabbis from the Middle Ages said, you, you can't talk about him, right? You can't, you can't just describe what, he, what maybe he's not, but you can't actually say something about him uh, because he's everything. And I think in a way, it was a bit difficult for the Judaism and especially maybe for the people connected to Hasidism because when you talk about connecting to God, about intention, about the heart, but then you don't have a figure that says, come along, I love you. And I think in this place, the tzaddik is a kind of a, a intermediate or a, a figure that help us to feel this religious connection with um, the infinity is possible. Nobody thinks that Rabbi Nachman is God in any sense, but still I think it helps us as human beings to imagine ourselves. And I think this is something which we can learn from this pilgrimage. Whether pilgrims are seeking to connect with a tzaddik or with the historical and religious moment from the Torah, like the renewal of the covenant on Mount Sinai. These moments Mandelbaum mentions are the crux of pilgrimage. From Israel to Ethiopia, Algeria to Ukraine, the holy pilgrimage sites represent, for pilgrims, something in between the divine and the everyday. And for many, the difficult physical journeys can deepen spiritual experiences, religious commitments, and cultural identities. Which is why it's no wonder Jews around the world take great risks and make great sacrifices to reach these destinations. It's all part of the journey. All right. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Sallow W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation and from the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. I'm the lead producer for this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll support it by going to associationforjewishstudies.org slash podcast to make a donation. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization. It features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members. See you next time on Adventures in Jewish Studies.